Hello, friends, and welcome to the Brother Cousins Podcast. Today, I'll be your host, Christopher Gerald, as we continue our thoughts on fatherhood for this month of June. Last week, we decided to talk about King David and the good and bad examples he gave us of fatherhood and made some practical application from there. This week in episode 35, we're going to focus on God our Father. Not the imperfect, but the perfect. And we'll talk about how he has revealed himself to us as our Father through the teachings of Jesus. And we'll talk about some of the implications of looking to God as our Heavenly Father and maybe how it will impact our parenting. Before we jump into that content that we know you're going to enjoy, we want to take a moment and introduce Jeffrey's two little girls as they do the interview questions like we did with my kiddos last week. I know you're going to enjoy. Hello, everyone. I'd like to introduce you to my daughters, Joanna Wells and Charlie Morgan Wells. We're going to ask them a few questions about Daddy. Okay, so first question is, what animal does your Daddy remind you of? What animal am I like? Uh, you are an animal. What kind of an animal? You elephant. I'm an elephant? Yeah. Okay, what do you say, Jojo? You're a giraffe. A giraffe? Those are two very different animals. The next question is, what is Daddy's favorite food? What's your favorite food, Daddy? I don't know. What is it? Do you know? Uh... Strawberries? What did you say? Mm, I say you like blueberries. Blueberries? I do like both of those. I love strawberries and blueberries. What does Daddy do for fun? Um, play with us. What? Play with us. Play with both of you at the same time? Yeah. That is. You're. That is right. You're. Or you were very right. That's a lot of fun. Yeah. Okay. I like it. Yeah, I do love fun. So what do you like to do whenever Daddy plays with you? Uh, I, like, I like you just playing with me when I do yoga. Oh, yeah? What about yeah. you, Charlie? What do you like to do with Daddy? Great idea. Yeah, it's a great okay. idea. What does Daddy do for his job? Mm, I don't know. What do I do for work? Meetings. Meetings? Yes. Okay, the last question. What do you like most about Daddy? Um, hugs. Hugs? Hugs. Yeah. Hugs. hugs. I love hugging both of you. Come here, give me hugs. Thank you guys so much for being on the podcast. Tell everyone bye. Bye. Say bye, bye Charlie. Bye. All right. Thank you, Jeffrey. That was about what we would have expected from uh, your two little kiddos. So thanks for doing that. That has been a lot of fun. Got some positive feedback already on the kids stuff. People tend to like that. So. Yeah, so as Jeffrey said, today we are going to be talking about the best example of all of a father, and that is um, our father, God. So a couple of ideas about that. We hinted last week, or 
basically said right out, one of the things that made Jesus' message so radical was that he referred to God as his father in a very personal way. And I think we'll find that that's a pretty sharp distinction to how the patriarchs and the nation of Israel viewed, you know, Yahweh God in the Old Testament, right? Yeah, that's one thing John points out at the start of his gospel. And I'm pulling that up right now. But we see that theme throughout John's gospel as he goes talking about God the Father and Jesus talking about God being his father. And there, John 1, 12, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And John starts his gospel with that distinction. And, and then Jesus just carried that and demonstrated that through his life. You know, Jared, I never really thought about that before that John says not by the flesh. And because that's where Israel staked all their hope was the fact that they were seed of Abraham, right? That's what the promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12. I'll make of you a great nation through your family. And everything was about who you could prove your lineage through. And Jesus is coming in saying, you're going to be children of God, but not because of who your earthly father was. It's because your heavenly father has always been your heavenly father. And it's interesting here, if, if we look, even really just jumping into Matthew chapter 5, that Jesus began talking about that idea. Even as we see in, in Matthew 5, in um, verse 14, Jesus said, You are light of the world, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp or put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, it gives light to all that are in the house. So let your light so shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And the interesting thing here is that Jesus, not only does he claim God, the God of Israel, as his own Father, but to his audience and those he taught, he said that God is also your Father. And that really upset a lot of people and was a different idea. It did. And whenever you look at, you know, through some of the Old Testament, you see some references of God being a father, the father. But a lot of those references really are in reference to him being the father of the of Israel, of a nation. And that's why whenever you see Jesus really getting scorned by some of the Jews for some of his words, uh, John 5 and verse 18, it says that that was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And to me, that summarizes, if you will, the, the Old Testament view. You know, that's why it made them so angry, because Jesus was calling him his own father. He wasn't referencing God being the father of Israel, you know, and they equated Jesus calling God his own father as making himself equal with the father. And they equated that with him breaking the Sabbath, which was a holy day for them. And it was just a really big deal. But as you traverse through some of the Old Testament passages, I mean, there's passages like 
Isaiah 63, 16, where you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer, from old is your name. And then, you know, a chapter later, it's, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not our iniquity forever. And you can just going through the biblical text in so many different ways. But in general, what it's talking about, this underlying theme is that God is the father of Israel, of those specific people. And it's not a personal, it's not a an intimate relationship. It's just very distant. But what Jesus says is he's my own father. And then to your point, Christopher, he teaches believers in Jesus that he's also their father. Yeah, I mean, we we see glimpses of this. You know, we talked last week about God having this special relationship with Solomon. And he said in First Chronicles 28 and verse 6, Now he said to me, It is your son Solomon who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. And that's pretty audacious. But, you know, God initiated that. It wasn't that Solomon said, you know, I think I'm going to call him God or call him father. God said, no, I'm choosing Solomon. And people were probably tolerant of that idea for that reason. And also he's the king, the symbolic father of the nation. But when it comes down to a very personal level, Jesus assumed that. And I think that the audacity of that probably rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And we see that transition moving throughout the Old Testament, even under the law. The idea of, and, you know, it's like people in the Old Testament ran, ran around going, who's your daddy? Um, you just see that over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament. It's very important to them in so much that we see it a lot in the New Testament. And Jesus's argument with the Jews in John 8, we have Abraham as our father. And Jesus says, no, Satan is your father. And Jesus speaking to a more real truth, getting to the highest abstraction of who it is you serve. And he brings that forward to us, to God, where this familial stuff doesn't matter anymore. Who your father is, is God. And and we see the good example of that in the transition moving from David and Solomon and, and God saying, I will be his father and he will be my son to what Christ is teaching to us today and and was teaching during his life that we will be the children of God to them. He gave power to be the children of God. He makes us all one people. There is the ultimate evening and equalizing of all humanity under the father God. Yeah, it's interesting in that in that passage that you referenced, Jared, when they said, we know who our father is. But if you remember, it, well, essentially, they're accusing him of being illegitimate because people right. would have known what happened with Joseph and Mary. Uh, you know, there may have been talk and it's pretty clear, you know, the Bible says that Jesus was as was supposed to be the son of Joseph. And Jesus had this idea of fatherhood. He grew up knowing that Joseph wasn't his real father. He honored him, you know, in, in the in the familial sense, no doubt, because he was perfect. But yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting that that Jesus knew 
that God was his father. Even in the instance where he was left behind in the, uh, the city of Jerusalem after the Passover, his parents missed him for three days, finally found him in the temple disputing. And they're like, why did you do this to us? And he said, didn't you know that I had to be about my father's business? And they marveled at him. I just think that awareness of who his father was, even from a child, would have been such a remarkable thing to hear from him. And the beautiful part about that is that he wraps all of us into that as well. And we have the teaching here in Matthew chapter six and verse nine, where Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. And when they're asking him to do this, basically they're saying, Lord, we've seen you relate to God. Teach us how to relate to God like you do. And in the beginning of that, when they're teaching him to pray, he says, you pray our father in heaven hallowed be your name. I just love that, that he says, not just my father, but it's our father. And giving his disciples the, the boldness, the permission, the authority to approach God in that way is a blessing that probably a lot of people didn't really comprehend the import of back then. Well, I think that that goes back to the contrast of the way that the Jews saw things in the Old Testament. They saw God as a father, the father above. I guess another way to put that is the creator, um, not the biological creator, but the creator of all things. And so um, whenever you start to talk about God in a much more intimate way, um, it's very, very different. And you see that theme carried on um, in the New Testament, specifically by Paul. And you see a lot of language in some of his writings that talk about the spirit of adoption, that God is, is bringing people into his family and adopting them as his sons. And he says in Romans chapter eight and verse 14, he says, for as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Now, there's a lot in that passage. Um, You know, we are joint heirs with Christ that we're equal sons with God because of this spirit of adoption. Um, But this phrase, Abba Father, you know, the fact that we're able to cry out to God as our father, um, and he says we call him Abba Father. Now, that's something that we've talked about a lot in the past, just over the course of different studies. I I know that we mentioned it several months ago as well. But, you know, whenever God adopted us and we have this ability to call him Abba Father, you know, that phrase is one that has been disputed on exactly what that means. And yeah, I've heard different narratives about what that means. A lot of people say that Abba basically is the equivalent of daddy, almost a childlike, intimate, affectionate moniker for God. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah. that And that actually comes from a Lutheran scholar that was just a very prevalent thought process and it's become just accepted as that that's 
that's basically what he's talking about. But there's been some other scholars that have come to disagree with that particular point of view. And they just mostly say that it's because um, that it's kind of irreverent. Um, they believe that Abba or Abba is a term that denotes reverence and trust that would be more in line with the way than an adult would refer to their father as my father, rather than a kid who doesn't really understand the trueness of the relationship, the fullness of the relationship. And I think that this is really pointing to this idea that if you were a Christian and you've received the spirit, that it didn't inspire the fear of slaves but you have this familial love and trust as sons. And so where a slave child living in a household may refer to the master as the father of the house, the true son, the true heir can say, you may call him father because he's the father of the house, but I know he's my real father. I am his legitimate son. And so this idea of Abba father, we are able to call him our true father is just an interesting thought that, as you said, is a, a major blessing. And it, it flows into this conversation that we're joint heirs with Christ. Yeah. And the spirit bears witness of this basically seals this. I think that's the seal of the spirit that we do belong to God. And I think that relating to God that way is I mean, it's the best that, that can be. I've been doing a lot of study about the names of God in the Old Testament and how that God, through his dealings with different people, got closer and closer. It's kind of like if you think about peeling back the curtain, you know, whenever he referred or whenever he appeared to Moses in the bush, that's the first time that humanity ever knew the proper name, the personal name of God, Yahweh. And it says that God told Moses that I didn't appear to Abraham or anyone else as Yahweh before, but to them, I was El Shaddai or God Almighty. And so for the first time, like, and, and you might say, well, how do we have that Greek word Yahweh in the Old Testament prior to um, that passage with Moses in the burning bush? Well, it's because Moses wrote it. And he uses the name Yahweh backward before humanity had heard it. And so we have him going to the almighty God, this impersonal, powerful deity, then to God giving Moses a name that expresses his nature, which means I will be the, the infinitive, the ever becoming one. And then in the Christian age, we're, we, we get the full revelation to where God is our father. So we can say at an academic or intellectual level, yes, God is my father. But what is the practical implication or application of that truth? Like how does that change the way that we relate to God in our daily lives? So, and I'm going to link this to what Jeffrey said. I, I don't know that either one of those arguments are incorrect. There's a lot of especially Greek words. I know Abba is not a Greek word. There's a lot of Hebrew words that bear wide definitions. Um, Jeffrey, I know you grew up watching John Wayne's because we watched them together. There is in the movie Hondo, 
where John Wayne is talking about a Native American term that he says basically means sunset, but it's more than that. It's what describes the sunset. It's what the sunset is. You, you know the scene I'm talking about. And it's this all-encompassing, you know, Tawny Morrow is just all of that. And I think ABBA is that. Um, not to be disrespectful, um, in, and now I'm just linking John Wayne movies together, but in Big Jake, John Wayne's character gets really offended because his oldest son, who he hadn't seen in 10 years, keeps calling him daddy. And he throws him in the mud and says, you can call me father, you can call me Jacob, you can call me Jake, but if you call me daddy again, I'm going to finish this fight. Because he's doing it irreverently and out of disrespect. So we could totally do that, and I, I get what you're saying. I've got a sermon on Philippians 4 where I talk about how we as adults lose something, especially those of us in independent nations that are independently-minded people. We lose that dependence that we had on our earthly fathers. And there's something wonderful about our small children, how dependent they are on us and how they look at us in adoration, but they have to be. I mean, that we're, we're all they've got. As we grow up and, and grow older, it means a lot to me when my older kids come to me with stuff. And we work to develop those relationships. We work to develop that trust. But at the end of the day, they don't have to. They've got, especially nowadays with the means of communication that are had, they've got ways to communicate with friends, ways to communicate with other family members, ways to get information on their own. And they don't have to allow me for that part. And then as they grow in independence, they need me even less. And so the relationship means more when they come to me. Now, hopefully our mindset as Christians is we need God for everything. But I can tell you my mindset is not that as often as it should be because I can do this. I'm capable and God wants us to do what we're capable of, but he wants us to lean on him in doing it. And that's what he was talking about with Solomon. He will be my son. He will depend on me to do these things. And we see where Solomon doesn't do that and it doesn't go well for him. We see where Solomon does do that and it goes really well for him. Christ was utterly dependent on God the Father. Philippians 2 tells us he didn't consider it to be robbery to consider himself equal with God. But he took on the form and the mind of a servant and became obedient. And God provided everything he needed. He didn't focus his ministry or his works on himself, even though they proved who he was. They proved who he was and that God fulfilled his word. And everything he taught, it's the Father has given me. The Father has told me. The Father has commanded that I do. And that dependence, even on the perfect Son of God or from the perfect Son of God on God the Father is, is astounding to us. That he was his dad. But it was in every sense of that, in love and respect and, and earnest and reverence. It was the whole package. You know, Jared, you mentioned Solomon's relationship with God in that way. And there's actually um, a passage in First Kings uh, chapter 3, verse 6. Solomon said, you've shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart with you. You've continued this great kindness for him 
and you've given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father, David. But I'm a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is a midst of your people whom you've chosen a great people too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to judge this great people of yours. And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And that's where Solomon asks for wisdom. So yeah, even a a wise person like Solomon says, Lord, I have no idea. And all of us can remember probably when our children have been in a stage where they get it in their mind, I'm going to do it myself. And they're going to mess it up really bad. (laughs) And I feel like that's probably where I am as a human being is I'm in this stage where I'm putting my hands on my hips and I'm saying, I'm going to do this myself. And I need God a lot more than I think I do. So Christopher, you asked the question, what does this look like from a practical standpoint? And I think Jesus is a good example of seeing the practical. Um, you know, as the the passage that you referenced, whenever he was in the temple, you know, wouldn't you know that I would be about my father's business? It references there that he continued to grow in wisdom and in stature. And I think that Jesus knew his who his father was, but he didn't know the fullness, kind of like what Jared was talking about there. And as we're children, a lot of the times what we will do is we are a little bit more humble and we receive God in a a slightly different way. But as we grow and we feel like we become more self, we become more independent and more dependent on self um, rather than God. There's a change in that relationship and there's a shift in that relationship where we grow apart from God. And that's the sin that takes place in our life. And thankfully, God and his wisdom has given us Jesus to reconcile that relationship. But it's in that relationship that we also realize just how much we need God, Um, because without him, where would we be? Who would we be? What would we be? Um, All those questions are essentially we'd be doomed because we're sinners. And so that recognition as more of an adult, somebody who's grown and, and their wisdom to me changes that relationship in a great way. And part of the reason that, that Romans eight speaks to me to where we can call him Abba father is whenever you think about this idea that the creator of the universe, if you think about the expanse of everything, that God created that and you bring it back the way that David did in Psalms eight, that God did all of this. And yet he visits me. He cares for me. When we think about it in that context, the creator of the universe lets me call him father, my father, and he cares for me and he visits me and he's done so much for me, despite my repetitive failure and pushing him away and rejecting him. Yeah, it is it is pretty humbling. And yeah, you know, at a practical level, 
you know, we can look at how our children relate to us and how we have related our, our dads, you know, Jay, he is 20 months old. He is a toddler, so he can walk around. And this happens a lot at church, you know, after services, people be standing around talking and he'll, he'll go off on his own and, and he'll be running around and, you know, he may fall and bump his head. And what does he do? He gets up and he comes running, right? He's crying. He comes to me. And he knows that he can come and he can lift up his hands and I'll pick him up and I'll take care of him. So when he gets hurt, he comes to me. And sometimes he's tottering around and he's having a good time and he'll see me from across the room and he'll run over and he'll, he'll set his head against my leg and he'll hug my legs and kind of give me a squeeze. And then he'll run off. He didn't need anything other just to be sure that I was still there. And from a practical level, whenever we're hurting or whenever we are suffering, whether that's from someone else's misdeeds or our own guilt and our own sin, we have to go to God and lift our hands to him. And sometimes when we're just going through life and it's on our mind, we just need to pray to God just to check in and say, Hey, I'm just acknowledging that you're still there and, and having that fellowship with God as a comfort I think those are things that maybe we don't talk about enough. Well, and to your point, knowing that he's still there is just such a comfort. You're right. So as we consider God on the practical level, I'm going to steer us into Philippians a little bit. Um, and, And in the sermon I have on this point, I use Romans eight quite a bit as well, Jeffrey. Um, But we have Jesus or the command from Paul to be like Jesus. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Be the servants, be the children of God, be brothers and sisters. And then he moves throughout the book and comes to chapter four. Beginning in verse six, he says, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. And I have torn through this, and and I guess it just clicked one night after an assembly. Some of us were standing in the back, and Matthew's girls, we we had just moved back here, so it's been two years ago. Um, but one of them ran by and I acted like I was going to get her and she ran and stood right behind Matthew. And he looked at her and looked at me and said, what do you want me to do? <laughs> because if you don't know um, Christopher and I's brother-in-law, I can hear it is a pretty slim fella. Um, he's, he's built after his side of the family and I am not, um, I'm around 240 pounds and, uh, built like a linebacker retired linebacker but <laughs> linebacker nonetheless um but it didn't matter to her because whatever it was dad was going to take care of it and as i think about the trust she had in her dad she wasn't anxious and she was until she got there But once she got there, she peeked out and was making faces and, you know, whatever it was, dad was going to take care of it. And in that passage, Paul gives us the command 
turn it over to God. Know that God is still there. When you're struggling, especially, turn those things over to God in his peace shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. This idea of being made joint heir with the only begotten of God and, and what that is and should mean to us. What we see in scripture and in God is, you know, and I think Jeffrey covered this really well, the creator of all. And in that aspect, he's the father of all, but there's only one begotten of God that is of himself and of his nature entirely. And that's Jesus Christ. And through his son, his only begotten, they raise us up to a level to call him father. And to know that dad's going to take care of it. As long as I'm trying to be pleasing to dad, he's going to take care of it. And the instruction from Solomon, if he's careful in my words, careful to follow the things that I give. God's going to take care of it. And so we, we look at, in a practical sense, how we have missed that and how we've changed that. And one aspect we've talked about how as we mature and we age, we become more independently minded and that mindset goes to God. But we've all talked about it, and I think it's been talked about in the people that I've had on this podcast with me. I've got a couple of brothers here that are in a constant wondering how to be closer to God. And both of those people were from hard relationships with their fathers. They weren't good. They were abusive. They were not really there for them. They didn't do a good job teaching them right and wrong. And so how they relate to God is born out of that relationship. Even though they're Christians now, they're solid, solid dudes being really solid dads. They feel that strain and that difficulty of being as close to God as they want and, and learning to lean on him as well as they should. And so as we push this into the thought process of how we learn from God to be good fathers, we need to do it with a mindset that this will affect our kids and, and, these guys have been in the church for years now, and they still ask the question, how can I be closer to God? So how we do this, how we handle ourselves as fathers is going to have a great impact on our children. Jared, and, and I like this point, and I'm glad that we have transitioned to this. You know, there's some people like your brothers who have a difficult time truly relating to God as a father because their view of fatherhood has been tainted because of the weakness of their human fathers. And we may project our expectations or our experiences with what a father should be or has been onto our heavenly father and attribute characteristics to God, the father that aren't his, but it's just because of the experiences that we've had, you know, maybe a, a young boy who, lost his dad or his dad left has a really hard time seeing God as a God that is going to be there. Uh, maybe a, a young girl who feels that she has to be successful in sports or on a school team to earn her father's approval may also see God, the father in the same way where she has to do particular things to earn his approval. 
And, you know, how tragic is it that such a beautiful facet of God's character, that he is not a distant or impersonal God, but a warm and welcoming father is often tainted by the weakness of human fathers. That's just tragic. But it's a lesson in and of itself. Completely agree, Jeffrey. And I think about this a lot as I think about my uh, parenting style. Whenever I handle my kids a certain way, I try to keep in mind, and I don't always do this. I'm, I'm still working on it, but I try to think how is what I am doing now going to shape my son's view of God? Cause I have to be there for them. And as we hinted at last week that, you know, whereas the tabernacle was kind of a shadow of things to come, I'm an earthly shadow of, of the, the true father, God, what can I do to represent God on earth? So that when it comes time to introduce my, my kids to the God of the scriptures, that they're ready to have that relationship. So I have in my mind a couple of things that I think are important, but I'm also curious to know how do you guys handle your children in order to parent in the image of Father God? This is one area that I have have struggled because I'm a firm believer that you know, God is the model father and that we should learn those lessons from him. And um, looking at the biblical narrative of love and grace and mercy uh, towards his children, you know, I've tried to think of ways, practical ways to teach a two and a four-year-old about that type of love and mercy. And, you know, sometimes it's something as simple as Joanna tried to pour her own milk and spilled a gallon of milk everywhere. And, you know, where I could get really upset about that because she just wasted money and now somebody has to clean it up. But that's also something that's on the grand scale, very insignificant and a good way that I can show her forgiveness because she's obviously repentant. She feels terrible She's crying, and yet I have an opportunity to either react in a a way of wrath and anger or say, I forgive you, and we're going to clean this up together. And that can be a learning moment for the way that he lovingly corrects us, the way that he forgives us and offers us grace, um, the way that he's there for us. Yeah, and that's, you know, throwing back to Philippians 4. The way Paul starts that statement is be anxious about nothing or don't be anxious about anything. Um, you know, Psalm 103 says, see, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always contend with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our guilty deeds. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. 
as far as the East is from the West, so far he has removed our wrongdoings from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our form. He is mindful that we are nothing but dust. As for man, his days are like grass, like a flower of the field. So he flourishes. And, you know, that ties back to the point you were talking about, Jeffrey, and your, your point specifically about in the grand scheme of things. And as I have sought to father like God, and this is a, a thought process I've had since having Ty, he's always been the ultimate patriarch. Now, he worked through the patriarchs, the heads of households, and so people really cared about who the head of the house was for a long time. And, and not that it doesn't matter now, but he has always been the ultimate head of the house. Psalm 127, except the Lord build the house. In dealing with my children, I've, I've tried to model myself after God raising humanity. Um directly with each individual household when they were very young, moving into kind of, if you will, house rules for kind of teenage humans or humanity, and then moving into what we understand as an adult relationship with Christians now, where this is what I expect to be a part of my family, and this is what I'm going to do. I'm not distant from you. I am still near but this is what my family is going to do and, and going to be like. And so with our family, we've tried to model that as best we can. And part of that, God states in Psalm 103 that he knows we're flesh. He knows we are nothing but dust. And he deals with us according to that. And especially as my children have gotten older, um, I've tried to intentionally tell them, you're going to mess up. You shouldn't want to mess up. You shouldn't intentionally mess up. But when it happens, know that I understand that. And, you know, part of his lack of experience, part of it is just being a dumb teenager. And, and if you're a teenager and listen to this, I'm sorry, but you, <laughs> you just, your brain didn't work real well yet. It will, but giving them that expectation that I understand I made a lot of mistakes as a teenager I make a lot of mistakes now, but it's not nearly as ignorant as it was back then and lay that grace out in front of them. So they know it's there ahead of time and build those relationships so that they see that I understand I'm imperfect and I rely on a perfect father and they can rely on me and rely on a perfect father and work to build that relationship in a way that I still have to bring correction, you know, and, and my kids understand part of my job as your dad is to correct you. It's to encourage you. It's to guide you in the way that you should go and, and help you find your strengths and where you fit the body. But part of it's helping you through those times that you mess up. That's good stuff, guys. I'm, love how every every father and, and every parent really has to come to the word of God and, and draw out what applies to their situation and where their kids are. Jeffrey, something you said is really important. Like, how do I 
express or model these things in a way that a child who's as young as your children can understand them. And you know, I've got children who are a little bit older and even younger than yours. And I think that there are things that we can do to model God, even if the kid doesn't understand that at the time. And some of the things that I try to do, and I'm imperfect at, but I'm working on it, is I try to say, how is God? Well, he is, he's unchangeable. He is the I am. And so what I need to do as a dad is I need to be steadfast and dependable as I possibly can be. You know, you talked about people who've not had a good relationship with their father, Jared, and how that can cause a challenge for trying to relate to God. I I had a coworker a long time ago who was a self-proclaimed militant atheist and that he actually evangelized to try to get people away from the idea of God. And his dad abandoned his mom and him when he was very young. And so to him, God didn't exist. He wasn't even there. And I want to be the dad who is there so that my kids will understand that God will be there. And that's going to be imperfect, but I think it's a start. Another thing that I try to do is whenever my kids ask me questions, I always tell them the truth. We've never lied to our children about anything, whether it be fictional holiday characters or what happens when bad people die or anything. We've always been honest and we've told them an age appropriate version of the truth whenever they've asked us questions, because we want to always be the source of truth from the word of God. And so we always tell the truth. And part of that is keeping our word. Whenever I tell my kid, I'm going to do something I need to be the kind of dad that's going to keep my word because I want my children to understand that God will always keep his word. That God keeps his word when he promises to give them a blessing in a certain situation that he means it and they can count on that. But also I want my kids to understand that when God gives a pronouncement of a curse, if a certain thing happens, that he will keep that promise as well. That's why I don't make threats and discipline without following up. If I say that I'm going to, there's going to be a certain consequence for a certain action. I have to follow up if I'm going to parent like God does. And part of that is parenting with consistency, which has been a real struggle for me. And Laura and I have really made diligent efforts to be more consistent with our standards and with our discipline, I think is important because God doesn't change. And I need to also be steadfast and consistent in my approach to my children, just like he is. So those are just a few things that we've tried to do. You know, Christopher, it's interesting that you mentioned the diligent aspect of this, you know, depending on what translation you read in Proverbs 13 and 24, um, King James version, you know, says that uh, he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. And it's talking about disciplining your child. Uh, But if you look at some other verses, the New King James says that he who loves him disciplines him promptly. The English standard says, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Um, And whatever version you're looking at, the Hebrew term for betimes or diligent or um, promptly sums up a word that means quickly and consistently. And so it's exactly what you're talking about there of this chastening, this disciplining 
um, being consistent. And that reveals the character of God. And it definitely can reveal the truth within us. And then, and as ambassadors of the living God, you know, we can, we can definitely skew. We can be part of that skewing process for our kids that we just haven't done a good enough job. And I think that Hebrews 12 is actually a really good model that we can look at, you know, starting in about verse four, it says in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. But then verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Now, that whole passage is encompassing a lot of what we're talking about here. The way that we can display the same type of love that God has shown his people by consistently and promptly disciplining our children. We're showing them a characteristic of God and his love. And he compares that to the earthly father. And, you know, we may have been disciplined correctly by our earthly fathers and we respect them. And that's part of that relationship. The unfortunate other part of that is if a father provoked their child to wrath and they violated a lot of trust, um, they made that relationship very distant. Then you can see that as the way that they look at their father as well. So there's a lot in this particular chapter, but the biggest thing is God loves us so much and counts us as legitimate children. And so it's his responsibility to guide us and help us. Yeah, that is huge. And it brings to my mind the amount, how much is at stake here? There's a lot. If we think about the, the, Destiny of our children's souls depends not entirely, but in large part on what we represent to them. And it it pains me to see parents who don't keep their word, who make empty threats, who are indulgent, that tolerate disrespect, that tolerate sin. And I I look at those kids and you show me a parent who who allows their children to flaunt and, and trample on their authority. Like there's almost no hope for that kid to respect the authority of God. You know, Jesus said, or not Jesus, John's wrote, he said, how can you uh, say that you love God who you haven't seen and you hate your brother whom you have seen taking that same principle? How are our children going to learn to respect a father they've not seen if they haven't learned how to respect a father they have seen? I think that same principle applies there. It is just so important that we reinforce um, that respect 
And sometimes we may be a little more gracious in the past. I've been a little bit too gracious and allowing some disrespect and maybe out of humility or tiredness, but I have to realize that it's incumbent upon me to embrace and own the authority that God has given me as a father and a leader of this family and use that authority to point my entire family to God. And if we do not own the authority of, of fathers and, and really come into the masculine in that way, we're not doing our family a favor and we're certainly not serving the Lord how we need to. Well, you think about that proverb in Proverbs 13, 24, the first part of it says, whoever spares the rod hates his son. Hates and we think back about our discussion about David and his sons last week and how David was not a good example for his sons. And you saw how it wreaked havoc on his entire family. And it really sets a pressure on us because you see the truth of this statement. And I don't want to sound judgmental of, of other parents, but we've got to recognize the pressure here. And that is if we don't shoot our children intentionally, then they're going to hate us. Yeah. And they're going to hate God. That brings that back to a point that I think hits all of what we've just talked about. That intentionality as fathers. Discipline, consistent, loving discipline does not happen accidentally. It has to be intentional. You know, a large part of the problem our world has right now is it's full of people that have grown up in homes where only the worst stuff they did. I mean, the very worst stuff they did receive discipline. Um, and, and it wasn't loving discipline. It was usually stuff that embarrassed mom and dad or, you know, was bad in the eyes of the community, whatever the case. And what we see with God is an intentionality with his children. Jesus is the one that gave the teaching about the narrow gate and the broad gate. And, and we see that in every aspect of our Christian life. And it's no different in raising our children. There are so many things that we can do that are a mistake. They're the wrong option, but there are so few things we can do that are the right way. And to find that right way, we have to be parenting intentionally parenting as God did to put the time in, to put the effort in, to put the sacrifice in, to guide and direct our children. We're told in, in that proverb that they are a blessing from the Lord, but they're arrows in the hands of a mighty man. They're a blessing from the Lord if we let the Lord build the house and parent after his example. Oh, and to this, to your point, God throughout the ages has been extremely intentional with his people. I mean, you see that over and over and over again. And as you were talking, it made me think of first Peter one and verse 20, where it says he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. He's talking about how Jesus was foreordained before God ever even created the world, that he was going to come and he was going to be that sacrifice. He was going to live his life and die. 
And God was very intentional in that. And he set so many things in motion to bring that to be. And so intentionality is something that we see from God's quote unquote parenting style throughout the ages. It's a high bar. And whenever we discuss these ideas, it makes me think about the times that I have personally failed to meet that standard. And I am so thankful that it's not all on me in that, as we said last week, that I'm just their dad and only God is their father, that we can be an imperfect, dim reflection and still get the job done if we if we get it right enough, if we have parents that are quote unquote, that were good enough. And I hope that I can at least be good enough in my approach to God. There's a disclaimer I want to give in this. And, and I don't know, we may have mentioned it last episode. God is the perfect father. He created us. He knows how we tick. He knows our strengths. He knows our weaknesses across all of humanity without exception mm-hmm. gives everyone exactly what we need to find him, to love him and to be a part of him and still so many fail. And as fathers, we need to strive diligently to point our children to God and at the end of the day, there are going to be some that walk away, that choose to walk away from the family standard, that choose to walk away from the relationship that we've helped foster with God. And, you know, that doesn't mean there won't be questions about what can I have done better. Um, but if God the Father loses some of his kids, we need, and this is a disclaimer to dads that have watched kids walk away, understand that it's going to happen. And those of us that are looking at men to be elders, um, there are men that have grown children that did everything they could do as dads that have grown children that are unbelieving. I think that a good example here is David and Solomon. You know, last week we talked a lot about David's failings with Amnon and Absalom. But then there was almost like this shift in David's mindset. And he really set Solomon up for success in helping him build the temple and devoting himself to God. He was a very wise person, made good choices. Until he got further and further removed from his dad and more and more influenced by people of the world. And he started making some extremely bad decisions. And you know, we can sit here and we can talk about how great of a job David did setting Solomon up for success. But in the end, Solomon still made a lot of mistakes and he chose to do that independent of his father, David. Yep. Yep. Yeah. This is definitely not intended to, to throw stones at at dads who have given it their best try and have been and have had children who haven't received it. But you know, along, along with that, It's important, you know, if you're a parent listening to this and you are experiencing the pain of a child who has walked away from 
the raising and the instruction that you diligently applied for decades. Don't give up hope. Recently in, in our congregation at North Dardo, we had a man who grew up with a raising in the Lord's church who came back to the Lord and later in his life obeyed the gospel and is leading his family to the Lord, leading his wife and his son to the Lord. And it's so amazing to see his willingness and his desire to do that. And I have to wonder how long his dad wondered that it would be until he did. And did his dad ever give up hope? Probably not. And so if you've got a parents, if you've got a child who you're still waiting for them, continue to, to act like God, continue to parent them and love them through the mess, through the imperfections, through the difficult times, show them that even though your child is far off like the prodigal son that you're still waiting and keep praying for that son to come home that's i'm glad you brought up the prodigal son that was something that i i as you were talking wanted to to tease out a little bit more um you know in that narrative that son makes those decisions um but what we see is the father looking down that road waiting for his son to come back and he waited for a long time but he was able to meet his son with open arms and forgiveness and reconciliation and mercy and grace and love and you know that is paralleled to god the father how he's waiting for his children who've gone astray to come back to him and that's a lesson that we can learn. When that child comes back, we've got to be ready to kill the fatted calf and put a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet. That's exactly right. And call him an heir. No matter what the big brother might say. Guys, this has been a great discussion about the challenges and joys of, of fatherhood. I'm really looking forward to next week whenever we flip this relationship inverse and discuss how we can better be a child like Jesus. So we're going to focus less next week on what God does for us, and we're going to look at how we can emulate Jesus' example of being an obedient son and, and how being a father really brings that full circle. So, guys, I'm really looking forward to that discussion. Um, we so appreciate everyone listening, and we hope that this content has been helpful and encouraging to you. And we hope that you'll take a moment to share it, to like it, and tell a friend about what you're listening to on the Brother Cousins Project podcast. We hope to see you next Monday with a new episode. Before we uh, sign off, though, we would love if Jared could lead us in a prayer. Our gracious, most merciful, merciful Heavenly Father, we thank you for the ability you have given us to be your children, to call you our Father, to be joint heirs with your only begotten Son. Father, we are mindful of how that we don't live up to your example, and we pray that you would help us be 
diligent study of your word and examination of your character and examination of our own selves to see where and how we can guide our children to you, how we can learn better to be better fathers each day. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to feel the need to be better fathers, to give good guidance to our children. Father, we thank you for the remission of our sins and for sending your son to die upon the cross for us. We pray now that you would remove anything from us that stands between us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everyone. Hope you have a great week, and thanks again for listening.